the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Tonight on the program, Dr. Jason Kinderchuk educates us about Novavax and why this might just be what the anti-vaxxers have been waiting for. Maybe, maybe not. Also, what does regret have to do with gratitude? And do you love your body? Are you unhappy with what you see in the mirror? Getting comfortable in your own skin is worth it. Plus, how does calorie restriction help you live longer? The answer is in the podcast. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. You have certainly heard his voice before. He is he studies emerging and re-emerging viruses. He is from the University of Manitoba. He is none other than Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. Here we are again. Yes. I think at some point you should just say he does some stuff adequately from time to time. That, that's probably the best way to <laughs> do the intro. <laughs> no way. <laughs> because there are people who sit down and they log into Facebook <laughs> and they yeah. think they've done their research <laughs> and then oh, they're no just kidding. like spewing misinformation, myths, and the the worst medical advice possible. Basically endangering many people's lives. I, I mean, this week I actually saw on Facebook um, something about a young mother who had died and people were, I assume of COVID, because they were saying that her child will go on, her young baby will go on to be, you know, to continue on the anti-vax freedom fighting. And I just thought, I mean, seriously, like how it just couldn't possibly get any sadder than that. It was as though they were celebrating her death because she stood up for, you know, her, her freedom. I mean, it, it just has gotten so bizarre on so many levels, especially <laughs> online. It has. It's, it's difficult, right? I mean, you know, today, I, I think, you know, again, it's been an uptick, you know, certainly the last few weeks, uh, you know, today it's been pushed back on the HPV vaccine. Um, you know, that that's something where you look at the data, you look at, at the I know. effect of the vaccine. Um, you, you look at the fact that, you know, you, you're taking away the possibility of, of childhood cancer. Right? I mean, you just I, I don't understand where it comes from. And, and again, I listen, I, I am not saying that that you know that there is not reason uh for, for people being skeptical I, I you know i talk a lot about science communication and our need to use this as a a tipping point for us to, to go out and actually do public communication better um but we we certainly also need people to to appreciate that this is what we're up against and in regards to to misinformation it is not people that just are getting facts wrong once in a while. It's people that are actually trying to spread, uh, you know, uh, untruths uh, around and, and, and change the, the game for us. Yeah, exactly. I actually saw that tweet that you responded to. I sensed your frustration. And, uh, you know, HPV is contagious, you know, and, and it yeah. was a woman who actually said that, you know, can you imagine they want to give a vaccine for something that's not even contagious, you know, you know, risk it, yeah. go ahead. <laughs> see the result. Um, you know, I mean, we have to be so grateful for vaccines. And and it, and recently, Canada, Health Canada approved Novavax. And yeah. they the company feels that this particular jab can actually help tackle some vaccine hesitancy in the developed nations. So tell us how tell us what that's what that's all about. Yeah, so so Novavax, we've we've heard about for a, a long period of time now. This is a you know I guess what they call a more traditional vaccine. It's a protein subunit vaccine. Basically, they take proteins that that represent uh, uh, you know different portions of the virus and they put them together and they use that to generate your immune response. So your body is basically seeing a part of the virus um, and and generating antibodies against that, and that's ultimately what gives you that protective effect. Now, we've used protein-based vaccines for a long period of time. Um, Certainly, the mRNA vaccines are, this is what they are trying to do, but from a different uh, vantage point, they give you basically the mRNA that ultimately gets translated into the protein that, that produces that immune response. Um, but there, there has been some hesitancy about mRNA. It's, you know, listen, it's, it's new to a lot of people's ears, even though it's been uh, certainly in, in research circles for a long period of time. Um, so, you know, we may see that there's an uptick 
uh, by a few percentage points when when Novavax becomes widely available, which is still the big question of when we'll get access to it. Um, but I, I don't think we're going to see that move from, you know, 80, 85, 90 percent people vaccinated suddenly moving up towards 100 percent. Um, there are some people that I think are, are arguing that, oh, no, 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 I won't get vaccinated until there's a protein-based vaccine. And now that there is one, you probably won't necessarily see those those people moving ahead. Some will. Um, but but I think a lot of it is just obfuscation about vaccines. Now, the bigger thing for the, the protein-based vaccines is when we think about uh, certainly low- and middle-income regions of the world, um, these are vaccines that certainly are, are much more amenable to, uh, to different temperatures, so you don't have to have that massive cold storage. Um, it's a little bit easier for transport chains uh, to move them around. And again, these are, are vaccines that have a, a longer history of being used um, from, from an approval and, and licensure standpoint. So you, you again may get some uptake um, from countries that, that are a little bit more uh, I, I think maybe concerned about the mRNA vaccines. Exactly. And they could also provide a little bit more durable protection against COVID is my understanding without that risk of myocarditis. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the hope, right? I mean, we're, you know, again, we, so far during the trials, we haven't seen any big uh, inflection points. Again, I, w- I would caution that, listen, the mRNA trials, we didn't see much either until we went out mm-hmm. to much, much higher numbers, but that's always, a numbers game, right, is that you can have tens of thousands of people on a clinical trial, but if you're only going to see something one in a hundred thousand people or one in a million, you won't see that, right? Uh, or, or there's right. a very low percentage chance that you'll see it. So uh, I think we're in a better place with Novavax. Um, to me, the, the biggest advantage is we have another vaccine. That, that's the most important thing. Absolutely. And perhaps can uh, continue to vaccinate throughout the world, hopefully a little bit more. I mean, I was amazed during Omicron. I don't know if you watched this, but I I watched CNN. It's the American in me, but (laughs) uh, at times. And uh, I I was just interested in their their numbers on, you know, as the Omicron cases were just soaring, the percentage of people getting vaccinated literally went from 63% percent in the U.S. to 63.5 over yeah. a five or six week period. I mean, you know, you would think, I mean, with the hospitalizations increase and, and also a, a, an increase in the number of deaths and certainly the, the surge in cases, you know, my, some people might think maybe this isn't a hoax. <laughs> maybe I should get vaccinated. But it was shocking how few people how uh, got vaccinated during that time. Yeah, I think part of it again is, you know, you get into that that region where the the people that really want to get vaccinated have already gotten vaccinated. People that were on the fence, probably a large portion of them have already moved forward. Now you're into people that that are much more hesitant or or who are much uh, more reluctant. That takes a lot more. So I think one of the issues that, that we faced with Omicron was that, listen, the narrative escaped very quickly that this was a mild variant. And when mm-hmm. you look at the numbers, yeah, it's lower risk of severe disease. But again, if you're infecting two, five, tenfold more people than you have with prior variants, you're going to get a lot more people that are getting sick and a lot more people that are unfortunately going to die. And that's what the data has showed us. Um, so I think that that narrative really hurt us with getting people vaccinated. And certainly the, the question of the third dose, um, people got tired, right? There was this complacency of two doses will be enough. Now, suddenly, there was the changing uh, goalposts of saying, well, no, 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 we need three doses because the, ver- the virus has changed. And I think there were people that said, well, do I really need to get that third dose? It, uh, we, we needed to do a better job from a communication standpoint, certainly. Um, but this is, you know, unfortunately, this is how situations change. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is my guest. He's an assistant professor in medical microbiology and infectious diseases at the University of Manitoba. Uh, he joins me on the line. Dr. Kinderchuk, I have a uh, text message question for you. Masks will soon be optional. I'm concerned. Can one-way masking be as effective as two-way masking? Is it a KN95? Is a KN95 mask effective for one-way masking? Great question. It is a good question. Listen, I, I think that where we're moving right now is going to be uh, you know, back to this idea that it's going to be individual behaviors in regards to either exposures 
or people that are symptomatic and, and, and using those masks. So I, I think, there, listen, there, there is a benefit, uh, I think, still to using KN95s and N95s, depending on the situation. But I think a lot of it is also going to be about just overall transmission rates, right? And it's going to be trying to assess uh, and, and do those risk, risk assessments almost on probably a weekly basis, uh, based on what we understand about uh, about current transmission in our community. So I, they can be effective. I, I think a lot of it is going to be more, um, are, are people still you know, taking the, the necessary precautions in regards to their own behaviors if, if they feel that they might have been exposed or are sick? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, one-way masking, for those that don't know, basically means you can wear a mask even if everyone else isn't. And the thinking goes is that if you have a high-quality mask like a KN95 or N95s, they filter so well against other people's germs that there's no need for everyone to wear a mask again. And, and for those who are immunocompromised or otherwise high-risk, you know, that high-quality mask is protective enough along with vaccines to keep yeah. that infection at bay. But, um, you know, probably it's better. It, it does increase. The protection definitely increases with um, two-way masking. And, and also those KN95 masks and, and N95 masks need to be, the N95s need to be fitted uh, so that they actually have a, a good seal on them. But, um, but great question. So we've learned a lot in this pandemic and, and Bill Gates is out there and he's saying, you know, we, we could do it better the neck, for the next one. God forbid, let's hope there isn't another one, but there will be <laughs> now that we know this can happen. Um, so what are some of the things we could have done better in your opinion? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I got to write a thesis on this, I think at this point. Listen, I, I think the biggest <laughs> thing for us is that um, the, the issues that we're facing are not new and they're not novel. Okay, so when we talk about certainly the, the biggest elephant in the room right now, which is again, vaccine equity and healthcare equity, this is not something that got exposed with COVID. We knew that these problems had been lingering for a long period of time, but there was there was no impetus to change them, and it, which is unfortunate, right? We, ultimately, it, it's cost uh, certainly a lot of lives um, with not dealing with this. And, and the unfortunate reality is until we actually uh, do this, when you look at, at emerging infectious diseases and you look at where there are hotspots, uh, the, the hotspots tend to overlap with the most vulnerable regions of the world. Well, it makes intuitive sense that you build up surveillance capacity, you build up healthcare capacity in these areas, because when, when unfortunately, diseases emerge, um, they don't necessarily stay localized. We saw that during Ebola. We've seen that during this. We've seen that during other infectious diseases, including even with uh, uh, imported cases of Lassa and monkeypox. So we, we actually can do better up front with, with enabling countries and, and certainly, you know, training and, and, and ensuring that we have good partners on the ground in these areas. Vaccine equity is a big issue. We need to figure it out. We need to figure out uh, local manufacturing capacity in these regions. We can't make people reliant on other areas. Certainly Canada needs to learn from, from the mistakes we made in that regard. Um, and also the, the importance of having open communication across different countries. If you, if you penalize countries for coming forth with data when they see new emergence or, or new variants that are emerging mm. and new infectious diseases that are emerging, you are going to remove uh, the, their desire to continue to report. Absolutely. You make so many great points on that. And, and uh, I'm glad that you are around to help us out with this. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show every Sunday night. And time's up again. I can't believe it. <laughs> So well, thank we'll you so much. Whatever, whatever's going to happen this week, Maureen. <laughs> a- absolutely. And, and we can rest assured that's one thing that's guaranteed in life. Anyway, I appreciate you coming on, Dr. Kinderchuk. Thanks so much again. I look forward thank to you. your tweets. I had a patient this week who I've seen before. And, you know, honestly, I say her cup is always less than half full. It's one complaint after another. And there's absolutely no gratitude whatsoever. And and this person, in my opinion, my humble opinion, has a lot to be grateful for. Gratitude is a warm feeling of thankfulness toward the world or toward specific individuals. The person who feels gratitude is thankful for what they have and does not constantly seek more. My next guest is a gratitude aficionado, a TEDx speaker, and author of the book, The Grateful Way. Through writing her book and preparing for her TEDx talk, I.J. McIntyre discovered we feel regret-free when we express gratitude. And I am grateful to have I.J. join us on the program. Good evening, I.J. 
Hey, good, good evening, Maureen. Thanks so much for inviting me to be with you tonight. Oh, well, thank you for joining us. You know, I think this is an issue that affects so many people. People get just caught up in complaining and not realizing, not being present in the moment, being grateful for what they have, always looking for more, comparing themselves to others, or wishing they hadn't sold their house when they did, or they had purchased a house, you know, earlier, or they hadn't divorce that person or whatever. And you talk about these things in your fabulous TEDx talk. Uh, how, how does regret affect people and, and how could gratitude help them? Uh, thanks, Maureen. I did some research when I was writing the book and then more research when I was getting ready for the TEDx. And interestingly enough, I started with gratitude However, it led me to the power to potentially relieve past regrets and prevent future regrets. And it's not so much the regrets themselves, but our feelings uh, that are caused by our regrets that really matters and how we handle those that allows us to either, as you were suggesting at the beginning, see the glass is half full or half empty or simply has enough uh, in it. And so certainly when we wallow in those feelings, when we, in hindsight, we think we could have done better, we wished we would have done something different, it's that wallowing that releases cortisol increases our sleep problems and weakens our immune systems. And it's that uh, opportunity to turn that around by actually uh, in, in, um, in a way that works for your listeners, because I know many of them are already practicing gratitude. Um, some may need a nudge to um, do something that will be helpful to them. Uh, but certainly it is not one size fits all, but there are some really great opportunities for us. Now, now we all have regrets here and there. The one that got away, you know, the, uh, the job I didn't take, the, uh, the job I left, uh, you know, the child I didn't have or the, you know, there are regrets, decisions that are made. But so we can have these sort of, many regrets along the way, um, or then big life altering regrets or, you know, not reaching out to somebody or phone calls or, you know, how dealing with somebody's end of life. Um, how, what are the difference between those little sort of day to day regrets? You know, I, sh I should have stopped at the store on the way or whatever to, you know, I wished I'd been there for them, especially toward the end. Um, what, what's the difference of those kind of regrets? Because we can't really live regret free. Nobody makes no. perfect decisions all the, t all the time. That's for sure. And certainly the interesting part is that it really is a spectrum and it starts at the one end with really tiny, insignificant bugaboos, if you will, that we wished we would have um, done differently um, and at the other end, where, in fact, Concordia University uh, in Montreal, a couple of researchers there showed that 90% of us have experienced an intense regret. And those biggest regrets cluster around many of the examples you've already shared, um, education, career choices, our finances, our relationships. And certainly even more than our actions, what we did do, the research showed us that when we have what if or missed opportunities that takes us down the road not taken, in our imagination, we often uh, blow it out of proportion and we make it the grass really greener and ideal rather than realistic. And that can 
be really difficult for us as well. And those are those perceived opportunities, right? We think that it's that it actually might have been a better choice for us. I, I mean, I often express what I, you know, something, a, a regret, not really a huge regret, but, um, a bit of one. <laughs> What I wished, what I wished I had been, and I'm not. Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah. I, when I say that to, when I say that to friends who are, they say, "You are so much better. You took the road you took, because uh. they're not happy." And in this particular job, that I have an idea in my head, you know, would have been, you know, a, a great job. Um, but you know, and so that's kind of helped me a little bit not regret so much. And I happen to love the work that I do. So that, so that's good too, but I could have rolled that in somehow. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Yes. But, but it's, you know, it's, they're not always these opportunities that we think, or we we always, we weren't always going to make all that money from that purchase of, of a house or, um, you know, or the stock market, you know, a lot of people are looking at it right now, you know, it's, it's soared in the last, especially in the last, year and a half through the pandemic. And, and so they have this idea that they have all this money and now it's dropped 10%. And, and then they're thinking I've lost all this money when they never actually even had it, you know, and, you know, there's just so many decisions to be made in life. And, and so much of it isn't necessarily tied to real happiness either. Is that a fair statement? Oh, I think that's more than fair. And I think that it's interesting how, we do, we, we blow it out of proportion. We, we need to cut ourselves a little bit of slack and remind ourselves that in the moment, at the time, we made the best decision with the information at hand. And absolutely, I mean, I speak for myself and you've seen my TEDx. Uh, my, in my 40s, I experienced deep feelings of regret. And it's interesting because many people who've talked to me um, since seeing the talk have a perception that it was my very best friend and how that's why it, it hurt so much. But it was what I was doing to myself about not picking up the phone, about not, you know, making time. I was procrastinating. I was busy. And I believed I had lots of time. And certainly when Uh my childhood friend passed away at 49, absolutely everyone was shocked, including me. Uh Um, However, you know, when I started to really dig into it, we can't change the past. Um, as much as we'd like to. <laughs> um, uh-huh. it's not, I'm so you know, sorry. It's, yes, it's not possible. And so, so when I went searching for something to help me and I read about the power specifically of gratitude letters to help me be significantly happier. And I, for me personally, I wouldn't say I was depressed but the participants uh-huh. in the study at Kent State, they felt less depressed and more satisfied with life after they'd just written one letter each week for three weeks. And so I took that to heart and I thought, okay, let's do this. Let's try it and let's figure out what might, um, what positive impact that might have. And certainly the first one, I needed to write to my friend. And Uh even though she was long gone, I was able to get down on paper what I would have said. And I've encouraged others to think about not just someone who's passed away, but someone, you know, back to your, one of your areas of expertise, relationships, because Uh we do think about the one that got away or we stayed in a relationship too long or any kind of um, situation that we can get those thoughts out of our head and into a letter and then give ourselves permission to let go. Uh-huh. 
what did you say, if you don't mind my asking, what did you write for the listeners to your friend? What were your words? You know, I wrote about everything that I I remembered from first seeing her in the magazine when I was working in Calgary and I didn't know she was in Calgary, but she had moved to Calgary and had this fabulous new job and she was in an ad in a magazine. And I ripped it out and I was so thrilled for her, but I didn't take the time to call, figure out how to get a hold of her, send her a note, anything. I just put it on my desk. I'll get to it. Uh-huh. And I, I wrote that I was so sorry that I hadn't made the time. I wrote how when I saw her picture, it reminded me of us being kids in small town Saskatchewan and taking dance classes and in sports tournaments and, and just being you know, kids and teenagers. And, and of course, hadn't seen her in 30 years. Um, uh-huh. the, the deal there was also you know, when I went to her memorial service and paid my respects, it, it was comforting, but it was too late. And if I'd, if I'd only reached out, I would have known she was happily married, more about her fabulous career, that she had twins, and uh-huh. how we might have reconnected and had her in my life for those, you know, you know few years that, uh, because uh-huh. it was, it was one of those things that time gets away on us. Um, a month, you know, a day turns into a week, a week turns into a month, a month turns into a I know. year, those kinds of things. So, right. Um, yes. And so interestingly enough, the second letter I wrote was just to me because I needed to forgive myself because I was just doing the best at the time and that I needed to express some self-compassion and and you know when you mentioned earlier how you know we would reach out to our friends and your friends suggesting that you know they're so happy that you pursued the career that you're in um, and that it fits you and all of those kinds of things that you know what we would say to someone else we need to remember to say to ourselves. My guest is a gratitude aficionado. I.J. McIntyre. I.J. is short for Ida Jean, and she's also a TEDx speaker and author of The Grateful Way. Shoulda, coulda, woulda, we all have regrets, but what does gratitude have to do with helping us feel free from regret? I.J., thanks for so much for staying on the line with me and, and talking about this very important subject. Uh, now, you've written a very uh, sweet, inspirational memoir, The Grateful Way, it's a lot of it is based upon your mom's simple and deliberate inclination to make the most of life, whether yeah. it be tragic or terrific. Um, many people would think that they'd have to give up a modeling co- career by 60, but it sounds like hers just began <laughs> at that age. Tell me a little yeah. bit about, about your mom. Uh, she was remarkable. And I was, uh, the baby of my family by nine and a half years. So I was young, but I had the pleasure of being, um, uh, having her as my role model. I always knew she was a positive person, even though she had more than her share of adversity. My, my dad died of cancer when I was nine. And the Christmas before he passed away on our family farm, our house burned down. And in the moment, don't get me wrong, my mom was not grateful. However, later, she was able to look back and see and find little nuggets that gave her strength to go on, gave her courage understand that there was a reason that there was comfort to her love of her life, my dad, that we were moved into Mm -hmm. town, 
that their square dance friends were able to come and be there before the funeral because we had a, they put on a benefit dance for us in the, the darkest, coldest, deep freeze of a night in, in January in Saskatchewan. Uh, and so it was those kinds of experiences for her that made a difference in terms of her perspective. And she certainly, she certainly as you go right ahead. Go ahead. I was no, going to no, say, you go ahead. She, she certainly did in her 60s and in her 80s have a chance to be a calendar girl. So anyone who's listening who seen that movie when my mom was in the retirement residence in the last years of her life they decided they would follow suit and they would raise money for charity and she was right in there with top hat and tails and having a great time her sense of adventure she always said yes when there was an opportunity and that again was something she was she was so grateful for uh, whenever. It sounds wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, she sounds like a wonderful person. She certainly had ad- adversity in her life, losing her husband, her son at a young age, the house yes. fire, and, and she's raised a, a wonderful daughter. I'm sure she'd be very proud of you. Where can people, we're, we're out of time, I'm so sorry. Where can people oh. find The Grateful Way? Hey, thank you, Maureen. Off? An absolute pleasure. Um, the... Uh, thegratefulway.ca, just Google that and it'll pop up. I don't have my TEDx on the website yet, but if you enter IJ McIntyre into YouTube, there it will be. And absolutely delighted to have this opportunity for you to help me spread the power of gratitude. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's a great TEDx talk. Thanks, Maureen. You got questions, she's got answers. The nurse is in for Nurse Talk. Welcome to the second hour of the Sunday Night Health Show. Lots to talk about on this hour. We're going to be talking about mental health and some new treatments for bipolar depression. Also going to be talking about longevity and what calorie restriction has to do with that. And uh, we're going to be heading south as well, because sometimes things are heading south for you. So... (laughs) Um, and we will be talking about some of the issues that are faced by many couples in the bedroom. But right now, I'm, uh, I would like to talk about a very important subject. And I think especially there's so many subjects in this pandemic that have actually um, had a light shine on them. And, uh, and this one certainly has as well, because a lot of us were staying home, less active, there are lots of people feeling badly about themselves, maybe, um, you know, increased emotional eating, maybe not feeling so great about their bodies as they have in the past. And, and body image is a big, is a big deal and a big issue for people and affects our lives in so many ways. This is why I'm delighted to have on my next guest. She's founder and director at Silver Linings Organization. She's a motivational speaker, a microbiologist, a six-time TEDx speaker, and a body positivity advocate. Welcome to the program, Nikita Sharma. Thanks so much for joining me tonight. Hello, Maureen. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. It's my pleasure. Um, This is such a a big image. We hear so many people. I was watching Shark Tank and even one of those guys said, um, you know, I've I've gained 20 pounds in the pandemic. I'm, you know, uh, I mean, so many people have issues around their their bodies. They're not comfortable in their skin. They, I, I mean, I had a patient one time who said that she felt that there was this one inch on her thigh that, that was impacting her intimacy in, in the bedroom. I mean, she was as thin as a rail, but you know, people can get focused on that or, or people who maybe have gained weight or don't feel great about their stomachs. Um, you know, especially women as, as women age and the activity decreases and, you know, or they're, eating habits change or hormones happen, but, but being comfortable in your own skin with your own body, it's such a big issue for women. And so you talk a lot about body positivity and why loving your body is so important. 
tell me a little bit more about that. How can we love our bodies? <laughs> and they're changing all the time. Absolutely, absolutely. I think people get it backwards. They think it's about loving your body first, but the real basis of it is loving yourself first and then taking care of your body comes second. Um, you know, with COVID, like I, I suffered a lot of that too. I went down into a depression and at the root of it, it is, it starts with your mind. So it, it's really hard for people to take care of their bodies if their mindset, if their mentality isn't right in the first place. Um, and I, I say, if you don't love your body, you're not going to make the time to take care of it. So you need to start addressing your thoughts and your beliefs about yourself and start building confidence and love from the inside before you start chiseling away at your body. Um, but a lot of people, they start the other way. They start trying to work on their body, but then, you know, the mind will always give up before the bodies. And this is where they fall into uh, not being consistent. And then they beat themselves up because they're like, oh, I can't, I'm not disciplined, I'm not this and that. But it's a huge mind game. And um, one of the good things about COVID was that it made me see how much, how much of a mental game it is. Um, so, you know, I really adopted meditation and breath work and gratitude. And that just totally changed the game for me as well. It, it is such a mind game. You're absolutely correct. You know, I, I just wish I didn't have those three choices of ice cream for dessert tonight or, or whatever. Body image is a person's thoughts, feelings, and perceptions of the aesthetics or sexual attractiveness of their own body. And, you know, we're all different shapes and sizes. And, and at different times in our lives, we're different shapes and sizes as well. And But yet it seems to be a battle for so many people. And and it, it is that internal stuff that that comes out externally, would you say? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. And, and yeah, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. No, it's, um, it's, it's tough for a lot of people because there's a comparison game as well. But what, mm-hmm. you know, what I really try to enforce in people is, you need to be your own, like be your own biggest cheerleader and you're never going to look like somebody else and not to compare yourself. It's, it's, that really is tough because yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and you know, Victoria's because, secret has a, a, a new campaign uh, and Victoria's secrets campaigns have historically been, you know, you know, when you said we're comparing ourselves to other people, we're often comparing ourselves. If we're just comparing ourselves to the neighbors, <laughs> they might look like us, but when we're comparing ourselves to models who are stick thin and, you know, all look exactly the same, maybe look like they have adolescent bodies, you know, in their twenties, but, but Victoria's secret has just has got a new campaign out where they, they have a transgender uh, woman on um, this campaign. There's a, a woman with down syndrome and women of different sizes and shapes and colors and and how important is a campaign like this to bring a whole new level of comfort uh, to women feeling okay about their bodies? I think it's amazing. And my new my phrase is like strong as the new skinny. That that Victoria's Secret model look is is so unhealthy, and it, it surprises me that it's still so prevalent and around. So you know, the more I'm seeing diversity and other people celebrating differences more. I'm like, yes, yes, this is what we need more of. Cause nobody, nobody really looks like that. Like a Victoria's secret model in reality. And um, yeah, it's, it's really good to or, see. Or they probably have different. internal stuff going on. They probably have internal stuff going on there as oh, well. Yeah. And, and um, there's a lot of um, even models coming out and saying that the, um, the hardships that they've gone through just with their own body image. And uh, now it's becoming, there's more light being shown on, you know, when models go to casting agencies, the unrealistic standards that they put on. So I think it's great that this light is being shown on all that. Of course. And, and body image, we think of it, you know, mainly for women that, that women feel badly about their bodies, but men feel 
body image issues as well. They might feel they're too thin or they might feel they're too heavy or they have too much of a paunch or they're, they don't have a six pack. They're not working on oh, yeah. a six pack either. <laughs> oh but, yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. So it, yeah. body image affects men also. Definitely. I've had a lot of male clients that come to me and they don't feel like they feel self-conscious because they don't feel big enough. They're not the biggest guy in the gym and it affects their, how they carry themselves and their confidence. And, um, you know, I've had men that want to get big just so they don't get picked on. They don't get bullied. And we that isn't as common, but it totally happens for them as well. And men want to feel desired and sexy just as much as women do too. So. Yes, they certainly do. Um, what can people do? I mean, I, I imagine that you wouldn't um, promote, you know, people losing weight versus you, what, what would be some of the, with your clients, somebody comes in and they're overweight or they're obese. They have a very high BMI, which was actually designed around men. Um, but that's another issue. And, and, and it's leading them to body dysmorphic disorder or eating disorders or severe depression. How do you deal with clients who present in this way? Mm, Good question. So I start by going within first. So I always start with the mindset portion of it uh, because like I say, the mind will always give up before the body. So I ensure that we instill a good morning routine where they're practicing meditation, where we're doing gratitude and being thankful for the life that you have, the body that you have and cherishing that because, and then creating a strong mindset because from there, then you'll be able to instill a good workout habit and go through those times where you're being tough on yourself, where you want to give up when you're solid on the inside, then you can get through those tough times better. And resistance training is the best thing ever. So I really encourage all my clients to do that. But obviously, if someone's severely obese, and that's difficult, I would say, pick something that you enjoy, something that's sustainable and something that you know, you can see yourself doing because that's where the consistency will come from. So meditate, go within and pick something that is fun and enjoyable to you so you can be consistent. And and how about when people over-focus on themselves or on their appearance or, you know, get depressed because something doesn't fit or, you know, they're outgrowing their clothes as an adult. Um, and they, and they know that it can be related to disordered eating, or it could actually be body dysmorphic disorder where their perception of what their body looks like isn't the same as what other people see. Um, and, you know, and and what are some of the other problems that people can face when they, when they have issues with their body image? Definitely. So, that's where, you know, going within the gratitude, the meditation really helps because, you know, when you have body dysmorphia, you're, you don't, you're constantly being hard on yourself and not loving yourself. Whereas focusing on gratitude, um, being grateful for what you have constantly will start to shift that. And I, you know, I was, I've been there before. When I did a little test on myself, I started practicing gratitude and meditation for 28 days consecutively. Mm -hmm. And after that 28 days, I was a completely different person. So, you know, I'm not, I'm no therapist, but I think it was just as good. So I think if if people were to adopt that, it would really, really help them uh, learn to love themselves more. Yeah, it's just such a big issue, and it and it can affect relationships. It can affect intimacy in the bedroom. It can, you know, promote self harm. Some people get so down on themselves. I mean, you know, even you, you know, add an extra ten pounds here, fifteen pounds there. You know, it adds up after a while. You're not as lim- nimble. You know, not as you know the exercise is feels a little bit different. You feel like you don't look as good. You know, but as you say, it's a very common issue for so many people. And, um, you know, there are ways to overcome it. And and basically, it's about loving yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's also, I think a really good thing to focus on is what you want yourself to look like in the future. Um, Like, how how do you see yourself when you're 80 or 90 years old or 70? You know, do do you see yourself as 
able-bodied, nimble, and still doing mm-hmm. the things that you love. Like, I always want to be a ripped old grandma. So <laughs> the way, the things <laughs> that I do in my day is going to be in alignment with that. And I don't think a lot of people really pay attention to that. But if you do, then, you know, working out will just become a part of your lifestyle. So really think about your future and what that will hold. Um, Because it can definitely be hard if you haven't worked out exercise for three, four, five years, then it's like climbing a huge hill and you almost don't even want to start. But if you just take those small little baby action steps to get you to your goal down the road, then it's a lot easier. That's right. And you did a great TEDx talk. It's not been published yet, but it's coming out soon. Um, so where could people, when will that be coming out on this very issue? You did that TEDx talk, I should say. Yeah, it should be a couple of weeks to uh, maybe you know, a couple of months because since COVID, the uploading has been a little bit slower. So when okay. it is uploaded, it'll be available on YouTube. Wonderful. Well, I look forward to watching it. It's a great subject and it affects so many of us. Thin, heavy, obese, it doesn't matter, you know, how we look to other people, you know, matters to <laughs> to just about everybody. But it's just such a common issue. You're not suffering alone and, and there's no point in suffering in silence. And you say you said you see clients. How can people get in touch with you? Yeah, so I I am an online transformation coach, and people can reach me at my website, which is www.liftlovelaugh.com, or on Instagram, which is Nikita, my first name, N-I-K-I-T-A, dot liftlovelaugh. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Nikita, for coming on the program and, and sharing your great work with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Maureen. It was an honor to be on your show, and have a great evening. calorie restriction as it relates to longevity. I I did get a text from somebody. I think it was related to the body image section, that segment that I just did. Um, And the text message said, uh, I did till I got diabetes, lost all kinds of weight. Um, Anyway, could be related to the last segment, could be related to this segment. But in terms of um, what I wanted to talk about right now was about calorie restriction. And uh, a key protein was identified that could be harnessed to extend healthy lifespan in humans. This study was carried out at Yale University. There's been tons of research that has shown that limits on calorie intake by flies and worms and mice can it actually enhance lifespan in laboratory conditions. But whether that same caloric restriction can do the exact same thing for humans remained unclear. But there's a new study by Yale University researchers that confirmed the health benefits of moderate caloric restrictions in humans and identified a key protein. And this was called the CALERI, C-A-L-E-R-I, clinical trial, the comprehensive assessment of long-term effects of reducing intake of energy. I don't have much time left, but there was a benefit to the thymus. The thymus actually um, grew. And also the other part of it, there's so much debate about what type of diet is better, whether it's a low carb or fat, low fat, increased protein, intermittent fasting. And the thing is, time will tell. But um, this this study was a well-controlled study that shows a simple reduction in calories and no specific diet had a remarkable effect in terms of biology and shifting immunometabolic state in a direction that's protective of human health. So I think it gives us some hope. It's time for the Bedroom Bulletin. I never know what we're going to talk about in this segment, but I actually never thought that this would be the subject. Um, but it did remind me of something. I was actually talking to a friend of mine who is a psychotherapist, and we were talking about how embarrassing erectile dysfunction is for some men, and and also how men who suffer with erectile dysfunction still expect to have a sex life. But you know, guys, it's pretty difficult to have penetrative sex intercourse when things are open down. Um, but, you know, one Finnish skier admitted that his penis froze a little during a cross-country skiing event at the Beijing Olympic Games, which made me think there's probably a lot of guys who'd like to have, this is no joke, by the way, that's probably a, more than a few guys who'd like it to be frozen, um, because, you know, ultimately, <laughs> that is needed. 
Um, but, you know, they, these were brutal conditions. The temperature just dropped significantly. In fact, they, they actually um, cut the race down. And uh, they were very, you know, they were, they were not uh, covered in thick clothing by any stretch of the imagination. And, and in fact, the, the skiers were barely protected from the elements. And, and, you know, many, many people talked about how brutal the conditions were. And so, yeah, that would lead to that little body part becoming just a little bit frozen. And uh, interesting enough that Lindholm told the Finnish media that it was one of the worst competitions he'd ever been in and actually that you know something an appendage had actually gotten a little bit frozen they were clad in thin suits and underlayers had minimal headgear and uh anyway you know the result when you have minimal headgear uh nonetheless it made me think about the conversation i had with my friend and colleague who is a psychotherapist and how erectile function is important. It's important for your sex life. It's important for your love life. And it's, it's you know, and, and it's hard uh, to expect that you would have a great sex life if you cannot get it up, basically, if you have erection function issues. And I know that it's extremely embarrassing for many men who suffer from this condition. It's, it's heartbreaking. And it is, and, and oftentimes they don't understand it. People don't realize that there are treatments for erectile dysfunction. In fact, there are a number of treatments for erectile dysfunction. And one of the, well, you know, and I was actually talking about the work I do compared to the work that she does. And so she's a psychotherapist. And so she looks to back to the childhood quite often and the bonds or the trauma that has occurred. And quite frankly, I look to the function. What's going on? What's not happening? And, and I provide education. So I, I really don't consider myself a therapist in any way, shape, or form. Uh, but I do provide a lot of education for people, the sex education that people just never got because nobody really talked about blood flow in the penis or, or pleasure for that matter. Because we weren't educated about that, the female sexual response cycle. When did you ever receive education on that? To be honest with you, I learned about it, the natural, but anyway, <laughs> no, but I learned a great deal about it through the sexual health research that I did at the BC Center for Sexual Medicine with some, with some of the most esteemed sex researchers in the world. And, but I realized like this information has to go from the bench to the public. People don't know this. They don't understand about low sexual desire. And in fact, I was telling this psychotherapist that when we did research on low sexual desire in married women, women who'd been in a relationship, married. Actually, they were not married. They just had been in a relationship for a year or more. It was a flawed study. It was limited to heterosexual couples only. Um, and it's not just women who suffer with low sexual desire. Men suffer as well. Women suffered about the rate two to one uh, to men. But so I was telling my colleague and friend about this that I put an ad in the local, not the local newspaper, the major newspaper, the city newspaper in the city that I was working in at the time. And, and I just said, you know, have you been with this partner for a year or more? You want to stay together? You love them, but you don't want to have sex with them. Call me. 500 women called me. Couldn't even get through the calls, needless to say. But we had plenty of study subjects, plenty of research subjects. And there were so many issues. Um, in people's marriages and in relationships, everything from sexual abuse, a past history of sexual abuse, or marrying the wrong person, or body image issues, to just didn't think that you know they or that they fit the bill uh, to be a great husband, but they just didn't think they'd have to have sex with them more than a year uh, or six months. They were perfectly happy just having basically a platonic relationship, but their partners were not. But a lot of them said to me. Um, that they their husband was patient uh, in spite of the fact that they had not had sex with him in one year, five years, 10 years, 15 years, whatever it was. And I learned later, follow-up research, that the men had not been so patient. And this is one of the situations where men have erectile dysfunction and they expect that the sex life is not going to change. It's very important, guys, that you get treatment for your unfrozen penis because there are many treatments and you know i think i like to start with conservative measures first 
And there's a nutrition plan you can use, decreasing inflammation, low glycemic index, high protein, low carb, getting your exercise, getting that blood flowing. But if you must take medication, it's important to know, and this is the education that I provide basically in my clinic or my virtual clinic, is that, you know, you can't just take one Viagra, one PD-5 inhibitor, one Cialis Levitra, and expect things to be looking up. You often have to take it five to six times for it to actually work. And it works best in a testosterone-rich environment as well. And you also have to be sexually aroused. So you have to be attracted to the person with whom you are planning to have sex. So those are important factors and important education bits for your bits. Anyway, <laughs> that's, um, I, I just thought, you know, I, I hear a frozen penis and I think like you guys, okay? Uh, it's time to bring it to the airwaves. Anyway, and which is why I do the show, just to bring this education to you so that your quality of life can, life can improve. Anyway, coming up next, we're going to be talking with Dr. Karash Anilati. He is the medical director at Mind Brain Centers for, Centers for Brain Excellence. Anyway, I got that wrong, but anyway, I got it right. I'll, I'll get it right the next one. <laughs> He's the CEO and medical director at Mind Centers for Brain Excellence. Excellence. Heal your brain, change your life. Your brain, the one on top of your head. Joining me on the line is a voice you've heard before. He is Dr. Karash Edelati. He is the medical director and CEO at Mind Centers for Brain Excellence. He believes if you heal your brain, you change your life. Good evening, Dr. Edelati. How are you? I'm doing well, Maureen. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for asking. I really appreciate you coming on the show. There's so much we know about the brain. There's so much we don't know about the brain. But there are so many mental health issues that people experience. And we, we certainly have seen a rise in that over the pandemic. We see a lot of people stating that they have they've never had been depressed in the past. They may now suffer from depression. Or sometimes people with certain mental illnesses may have found that the loneliness associated with those mental illnesses and then the subsequent pandemic has made their condition worse. I wanted to talk tonight about bipolar disorder. Can you actually describe for the listeners what bipolar disorder actually is? Of course, Maureen. Um, so bipolar disorder is a mood disorder, first of all. Uh, and uh, as the name suggests, you have um, two poles. So bipolar, that's what it means. It means that you uh, spend some time in a manic or a hypomanic uh, state, uh, and at other times you spend uh, time in a depressive uh, kind of state. Uh, that's where the bipolar name comes from. Now, there's specific criteria for a diagnosis of bipolar disorder, um, and a person uh, must have had at least a manic episode or a hypomanic episode and then a depressive episode uh, to have that diagnosis. Um, some of the things that typically uh, people struggle with in a, in a manic episode, which is the more severe form of uh, bipolar disorder called bipolar 1, uh, starts with um, irritable, um, really um, kind of expansive, we call it, mood. Um, and uh, in addition to having that, uh, you know, about four days of it, Usually, uh, the person also has difficulty with uh, sleep, so they cannot sleep. Uh, they're like energized bunnies, um, and even when they um, don't sleep, the next day they don't actually need any more sleep, and that's a pretty important aspect of this diagnosis. Uh, they plan a lot of activities that they cannot finish. Um, they have some uh, grandiose idea, so basically they think they're invincible or they're you know, the next Albert Einstein, et cetera. And they may very well be, but, uh, you know, this goes along with the other symptoms. Um, they also have uh, difficulties with uh, talking really fast or talking uh, in a lot of volume, basically, where the person who's interviewing them has got a difficult time uh, actually stopping them from talking. Um, and uh, distractibility is another hallmark of this um, and they engage in a lot of risky activities. So um, gambling, um, you know, extramarital affairs, uh, and uh, substance use. 
Um, so during this period of time, they just need the irritable, expansive mood plus one of uh, three of these symptoms. So now, if the symptoms are mild and they don't require hospitalization or they don't require um, to have uh, been treated to be treated for a psychotic uh, kind of episode, then we call that a hypomanic episode. Uh, and if they do, then it's a manic episode, which is more severe. And, um, of course, in both cases, the person's uh, functioning is badly affected, meaning that in their job, in their school, or in their social interactions, it's very, very difficult for them to function. So that's kind of the bipolar and, and one and bipolar two, yeah. Right. And, and this used to be called manic depression. Is that correct? That's right, because they typically have one or two um, manic or hypomanic episodes, so the ones that I just described, and then the rest of the time they spend in depression. And this is the reason they say manic depressive. Um, so it's a, it's a very, very difficult uh, illness for a lot of people uh, because the, especially the mood and the irritability and kind of the angry Part of it is difficult for people around to uh, deal with, um, and also for, for the person. Obviously, their functioning is uh, impaired as well. Of course, and I know that there are antipsychotic medications. This isn't easy to treat. Um, oftentimes, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but if people are prescribed an antidepressant, one of the SSRIs, that can cause them to go manic. Um, and, and I know that ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, has been used, but there are side effects uh, like memory issues. But uh, at your clinic, you offer something called transmagnetic stimulation. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, uh, or RTMS, uh, which is a repetitive TMS. Um, in short, it's uh, using uh, electrical currents to create a magnetic current. It's a mild stimulation in comparison to ECT or um, other um, basically electrical magnetic uh, ways of treating uh, these conditions. Um, and it's, it's non-invasive, uh, and it's applied to the areas where we see the depression uh, on uh, our basically brain maps, we call them. Um, we, we can you know, look at the brain and see where, which areas of the brain may have those uh, symptoms, or just based on the symptoms of the person. And typically, we use that when uh, somebody is on an antidepressant, and you know, they, they're still having difficulty, so as a complementary uh, treatment, it really helps with um, depression or when the person is in the, in the depressive state of their bipolar one or two. Yes, and, and ECT is, is invasive. It's um, a, a person actually needs to go under general anesthesia for a brief period of time, uh, but it also provokes a seizure. So uh, does TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation, does it do the same thing? Does it do the same work? And how well does it work? Yeah, no, it doesn't, Maureen. It's a much, much, much milder uh, stimulation uh, process. Um, and uh, in fact, um, other than uh, you know some um, sensation of a rubber band basically uh, uh, touching the skull, uh, during the process there isn't a whole lot to it. Um, you know, some people might might uh, just at the beginning develop some uh, mild headache from it, but that goes away once you know once they've had a few sessions and they're used to it. It's, it's basically the sensory stuff on the scalp that's uh, initially the difficult part of it. And and can this be done in the office? Yes, it's an office procedure. You're you're in and out. Uh, to, uh, the process, uh, uh, the shortest process is. Uh, five minutes and the longest process is half an hour. So depends on what we see and the level of uh, you know depression. Sometimes we go higher intensity, um, uh, and sometimes you know the lower intensity. So it's very person dependent. And, and how many treatments would a person who's suffering with depression that's not being treated uh, appropriately or well enough uh, in bipolar depression? How many treatments would somebody need? So typically the course is a 30-session course, um, and after the 30 sessions, we, we reassess to see where the person is at. We typically uh, use uh, measures at the beginning, in the middle, and at the end 
and these are uh, validated uh, psychometric measures. So, you know, we look at uh, mood and all the symptoms associated with it and see where the person is at. Uh, 30 should suffice, but some people require more. And so we'll assess and uh, figure out from there. Well, there's, there's so many advancements in brain health and in mental health these days, and, it, and it's so critically important for people to lead uh, a good quality of life. So many people suffer with anxiety, depression, bipolar depression, schizophrenia, and, and many others. And you address all of these at Elamind Centers for Brain Excellence. Is that correct? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, we have our empathy for people. This is a very difficult time for everybody. Um, and you're happy that you can provide that service for a lot of people in need. It sure is. It's such a difficult time for so many. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Edelati. Karash Edelati is my guest. Uh, what is the best Absolutely. way for people people to find out more about Elamine Centers? Well, they can go to, yeah, they can go to our website, Maureen. It's www.elumind.com or elumind.com. And uh, all the information is there. Wonderful. Thank you so much, and thank you for all the excellent work you're doing to help so many people. It's greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, Marie, for having me on the show, and my pleasure. You're you're very welcome. That was Dr. Paresh Adelati. Adelati, he is the Medical Director and CEO at Elamine Centers for Brain Excellence, and you can find out more information at elamine.com. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.